That little bit reminded me of a famous line in a, in a very famous football match. They think it's all over. Well, it is now. But thanks to Kyle and, and the guys here and to Leanne for leading us in those great songs of praise. Um, I was due to be in Cork this morning um, in Passage Baptist Church, and uh, I was looking forward to that. Passage Baptist Church is a church that was formed last year, constituted, and uh, I was going down to, to meet the church and to meet with their members. They had an outbreak of COVID, and uh, that was sort of put off. I'm actually meeting with their members this afternoon by Zoom, um, but unfortunately, I'm not uh, there in person. Um, but in the providence of God, um, that actually allowed me to step in to preach here this morning at short notice. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing, the providence of God. There are many situations in life um, that we need to trust the providence of God. Um, many situations in life that come to us and we just don't get it. We don't understand it. We don't know why things are happening. The only place we can turn to is the providence of God. Um, the only place we can place our trust is in, is in Christ. And we have to remember that God's ways are much higher than our ways. His thoughts are much higher than our thoughts. And we learn to rest in the providence of God, whatever happens in life. So anyway, I'm supposed to be in Cork. I'm not in Cork. I'm in Carrickfergus this morning. And we're going to look together at Psalm 19. So let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 19. This is a, this is a wonderful psalm. And C.S. Lewis um, the English professor and author, as he was also a theologian. And in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, he describes this psalm as the greatest poem in the Psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Now, we can admire this portion of scripture because of its literary credentials. Um, but most of all, we admire this, uh, this, these, uh, this passage of scripture because it is the word of God. So let's hear the word of God together as we read Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. 
Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We know that the law of the Lord is perfect and it revives the soul. And so, Father, as we look at your word this morning, we pray that you will speak into each of our hearts and minds. We pray that you'll give us ears to hear, soft hearts to process. And Father, as we meet around your word this morning, it is my prayer that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I wonder if you uh, were granted the ability to have a superpower. I wonder which superpower you would choose. Would you choose to have strength like the Hulk? And would you choose to have the ability to fly like Superman? Or even a little bit, what about like Back to the Future? Would you like to have, be able to time travel? I wonder what superpower you'd have. I often think, wouldn't it be great to be able to make yourself invisible? Imagine if you could make yourself invisible. Just think of the fun that you could have. You know, there'd be lots of perks. You could listen into a whole lot of conversations without being noticed. Um, you could play many tricks on people. Um, you know, you could sneak up on them and scare them and do all sorts of things. But when you actually think long and hard about being invisible, it presents a whole lot of problems and difficulties. Think about communication. Um, most of our communication is through body language, through visuals, through visual cues. So how would you go about building up relationships with somebody if you were invisible? How do you go about communicating with somebody when they can't see you? Well, one of the facts the Bible declares about God is that he is invisible. 1 Timothy 1.17 makes clear, God is the king of the ages, the immortal, the invisible only God. And that presents a challenge. How does an invisible God relate to this visible world? We know that our f most basic fundamental need as human beings is to know God. That's our purpose. We were created in his image. We're designed to know God. If we don't know God, then we are some way not fully human. We have no purpose in life. So how so we know that God is invisible. We're designed to know God, but there's a fundamental problem here. How do we know God who is invisible? How does God go about communicating himself to people? How has God made himself known to people? Well, I think this psalm gives us a number of ways. It's really helpful to see how God reveals himself to people, to creation. And the first thing that we can see about this is we look down this psalm, we're going to split it up into three sections. We're going to see three ways in which God makes himself visible, reveals himself to people. The first we see, verses one to six, God speaks through the skies. God speaks through the skies. Verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
And these verses are saying that God speaks and reveals himself through creation, particularly the skies. And uh, biblical scholars, they'll, call, they'll give that a term. They call that general revelation, that the attributes of God are clearly seen by everyone in creation all around us, his power and his might and his greatness. Psalm 24 reminds us, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it, and he founded it on the seas. I love some of the, the, the uh, documentaries pre- presented by David Attenborough on how the natural world operates. They're absolutely fascinating. You, know, you see the variety of animals and the plant life and how they interact and you know, the lengths they go to to capture this all on camera. It often fascinates me, you know, even however, you know, after having presented this wonderful picture of the creation, they actually just stop short of acknowledging the creator behind it all. And they prefer to adopt some sort of other theory about how all of this came into being. The creation declares the glory of God. He made it. But these six verses, they're particularly concerned with one aspect of creation, the skies. Basically, the psalmist is saying here, look up above you, look at the skies. Lift your eyes to everything that is above you. God is speaking. God is communicating through the skies. It's as if God is preaching through the skies. When we think of the heavens, what are we talking about? We're talking about the sky at night, where the moon, the stars, the planets, the comets. We're talking about the sky in the day. Think of clouds and sun. Think of you know, panoramas and vistas. Um, think of people capturing the pictures, you know, even of, of the northern lights and all of those kind of things. Everything in the sky above is declaring the glory of God. Astronomers tell us that there are around 100,000 million 100,000 million stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way. And then they estimate that there are 2 trillion galaxies. 100 million, 100,000 million stars in one galaxy and there are 2 trillion galaxies. That speaks of the glory of God. It's the work of the hands of God. He placed it there. He sustains it. His power controls it. Well, God is communicating through the skies. He's, it's like, he's like preaching a sermon, if you like, through the skies. And what does verse 2 tell us about this sermon? It tells us that it's constant and it's continual. Verse 2 says, day after day it pours forth speech. Night after night the skies display knowledge. When you wake up in the morning, God is already speaking. The sun is shining. Colors filling the sky. When you go to sleep at night, God continues to speak. Look up at the stars, the moon, the planets, the vastness of the night sky. It all speaks of the infinite knowledge of God. So as we live our lives, there's this constant sermon that's being preached through the sky. But we, we, we shouldn't really think of it like a, you know, sometimes when you're in church, the sound system isn't quite working and there's like a humming noise in the background and it's a bit irritating. You know, that, that isn't what this is like. You know, it's not like that in the background. What it actually is, is this, this sermon from the skies is like a beautifully crafted symphony played by the greatest orchestra. That's as we live our lives, there's this beautiful symphony being created in the skies all around us. And the imagery here is that it's constantly, it's continual, it's constantly being poured forth like a waterfall. I've been to Niagara Falls, I think, uh, three times, but you don't even need to go to Niagara Falls. You can go up the road to Glen O, and if you stand at Glen O and you look at the water, you kind of go, where's it all coming from? It just doesn't, it doesn't seem to stop. It's just constantly coming and, and coming and coming. And that's what it's saying here. This is an endless picture of the skies proclaiming God's glory. Well, what is it? Well, it's, it's not a sermon in words. It's a sermon in, uh, in uh, 
not without words. Verse 3 tells us it's without words. God's trying to arrest our attention. We see the colors, we see the shapes, we see the magnitudes, we see the texture, the light, and the motion. It's pictorial, it's directed to the eye. And we know that faith comes by hearing. So this sermon from the skies isn't able to bring about faith, but it shows forth the glory of God and it helps us to recognize the creator. So it's constant and it's continual, but it's global and international. Verse four tells us their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. So the sky above and every part, on, every part of the earth is under the sky. Verse 1 said, if, if verse 1 said the seas declare the glory of God, that would be correct. But you couldn't say that their voice goes out around all the earth if you think about it, because there's some people who have never seen the sea. But every single human being that lives on planet earth has seen the sky. Everyone has this opportunity to see the sermons being preached in the sky above us. In verse 5 and 6, they go on to specifically speak about the sun. The sun rises from one end of the heavens, completes its circuit. We often see those pictures, you know, New Year's Eve has just been passed, you know, and you see on the news where they start in New Zealand and then they work their way through, everybody celebrating New Year's. This idea of the sun rising, rising like a champion, going through its course and setting again. Nothing will stand in the way of the sun because God controls it. And nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun. Every nook and cranny on the face of this earth is being saturated with the testimony of God in creation. Everyone everywhere lives under the sky and sees the course of the sun. So we have God revealing himself in the skies. A constant, continual, global, international sermon that God is revealing himself to humanity. That causes us to stop and and uh, grasp two, two things, I think. Let's not miss the glory of God in creation. Let's take time to stop, to look up, to look around, to marvel at the wonder of creation. But we're not to marvel at creation. Creation points to the creator. We're to give him praise. We're to recognize his might and his power. And the magnitude of God should inform our praise. Think of some of the famous hymns that help us do that. Um, how great thou art, O Lord my God, when I, am, when I am awesome wonder, consider all the works thy hand has made. I see the stars, I hear the mighty thunder, thy power throughout the universe dis- displayed. Then what should that cause us to do? Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. We should praise our creator, we should stand in awe of him, and we should recognize that we are his creatures. Second thing that we should cause to grasp is, is that Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 makes clear that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen so that men are without excuse. But we know that people suppress the truth. People suppress the truth. But we should be encouraged that within every person, they're created in the image of God, and there's a small part within them somewhere which acknowledges the creator because the invisible qualities of God have been clearly seen and God has made it clear to them. I wonder if you ever follow social media. Um, there's a story about Christianity. This often happens and, and you read through the comments and somebody somewhere out there generally thinks they're you know, being smart and they say, oh, you Christians, well, if you want to pray to your sky fairy, you go on ahead and do that. I'm sure you've picked that up. You've probably seen it. You know, and you sort of think, oh, that person is so far from 
understanding and recognizing the creator God. Well, God has already met that person in the morning as the sun has risen. God speaks to that person as they walk the dog in the evening. Yes, they need to know about Christ. They need to know the gospel. But the invisible qualities of God are clearly seen. So don't be put off. Don't think that person is beyond the reach of God. Be emboldened to speak to them. Be emboldened to know that you know the creator of all things. And be prepared to share him with that person. So that's the, the first thing we grasp, is that God reveals himself in the skies. The second thing that we can grasp is that God reveals himself through Scripture. Through Scripture. Verses 7 to 11 shows us that God reveals himself through Scripture, the written word. And we use the term general revelation about the, God revealing himself through creation. Biblical scholars would then call this, they call this specific revelation, special revelation. The creation is a vast sermon from God. It tells us of his character, but it can only tell us so much of his character. The fact that he is powerful, the fact that he is eternal. But if we want to learn more of the specific character of God, the fact that he's loving, that he is gracious. If we want to know that with clarity and fullness, then we need to know a bit more than what creation tells us. And so God graciously reveals more of his character by giving us his word. As you look down at verses 7 to 11, what jumps out is the psalmist David, his response to God revealing himself in, in, in scripture. And the first thing in David's response that we can see is that David delights in scripture. David delights in God's word. You only have to look at the way David describes God's word in verses 7 down through to 11 to see that he has high regard for scripture, that he delights in it. Look, look at some of the terms there that is used, that are used in verses 7 to 11. Well, there's, there's a number of different terms that are used to describe scripture. So you have law, law of the Lord. You have testimony of the Lord. You have the precepts. You have the commandment. You have the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. They're, they're all uh, the ordinances. They're all basically used interchangeably to talk about God's word, scripture. But alongside each of those six terms, there are six adjectives that are added uh, that, that describe God's word. And they're wonderful whenever you sit and you contemplate them and you meditate on them. Perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. It is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It is sure and steadfast. The precepts of the Lord are right. They're not wrong, they're right. The commands of the Lord, I love this, the commands of the Lord are radiant. Radiant. You ever think of commands as being something that is radiant? This displays a high regard for Scripture. It shows us what really Scripture is. The book that we have in our hands is wonderful. It is perfect. It is radiant. It is right. It is sure. We can stake our life on it. We can see the impact even, go even further. We can see the impact that Scripture has. So the law of the Lord, not only is it perfect, but it revives the soul. God's word revives the soul. God's word gives life to a dead soul. Romans 7, 10, 17 reminds us, I've already mentioned, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of God can bring life into a dead soul, can bring someone from darkness to light, from death to life. There's no other way that a soul can be revived and regenerated other than God's spirit using the word of God to bring them to a knowledge of himself. 
There's also an aspect here of God's word reviving a soul that is downcast. Are you discouraged? Are you having a difficult time? Is your soul in need of reviving? Well, this verse tells us that scripture is the place to go to because the, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Scripture makes wise the simple. The word of God gives us wisdom to handle situations that life may throw at us so that we can respond in many, in many positive ways. Scripture gives joy to the heart. 1 John reminds us that happy is the person who hears my word and does it. Happy is the person who obeys God's word. Reading the word of God, learning the word of God, immersing yourself in the word of God will bring joy to your heart. Scripture gives light to the eyes as well. Scripture gives light to the eyes. Have you ever been in a completely dark place? You know, you fumble around in a dark room and you trip over things. And, but if you take a light out and you shine a light or you flick the light on, everything becomes clear. Many people struggle through this life. Many people are struggling. People you know, people you work with, people that your neighbors, people in your family, they struggle through this life. They're, it's like they're fumbling in the dark. They're looking for meaning in life. They're tripping over things. They're looking at, they're falling all over the place. They need somebody to flick the light on. Well, the word of God, scripture brings light to the eyes. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word puts meaning into life and gives light in dark places. Scripture is righteous, endures forever. David delights in scripture. You can see it here. You can see the way he describes scripture. But I, I think we haven't even touched on the main reason why David delights in Scripture. And the reason why he delights in Scripture, you're very easy to overlook a phrase that's in each of these six statements. There's a little phrase there, and you'll see it. Of the Lord. The law of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord. It's very easy to overlook that little phrase. It's the fact that Scripture is inspired by God. It is breathed out by Him. That's what makes it altogether righteous and enduring. God, the Creator God, knows what is best for His creation. And Scripture is given for our good. It's given to us by a loving Creator for our good and for our well-being. Isaiah 40 verse 8 reminds us, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. The word of the Lord will stand forever. That's why David delight, delights in Scripture. And in noticing this and in recognizing this, we can see the second thing that David does. He delights in it, and then he desires it. He desires it. As a result of the inherent value in Scripture, and David delighting in it, he desires it. Verse 10 tells us that it leads him to conclude, Scripture is more valuable than any earthly commodity. Verse 10 tells us, more to be desired are they than gold, even fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. By comparing scripture to honey and to gold, the picture being painted here is that scripture eclipses the sweetest consumable food and more precious than the most precious valuable metal. David is saying, if you have the choice between the word of God and gold, choose the word of God every time, hands down. He actually says, if you have the choice between the word of God and much gold, choose the word of God. The point is plain. The benefits of knowing and doing the word of God are greater than all that money can buy. 
I wonder, do we really believe that? We need to make the link that David was able to make. This book is the very words of God. Psalm 1 tells us, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. We need to have that same desire for the word of God that David had. Let's hold scripture in high regard. Let's delight in it and let's desire it. Third thing we can see in David's response to scripture then is he depends on it. So he delights in it, he desires it, and then he depends on it. Verse 11, he says, there is warning to be had in scripture and there is great reward in keeping it. Notice David speaks firstly in the negative. He says, well, there's warning. There's warning in Scripture. But he also speaks in the positive. There is great reward. Yes, there's warning, but there's great reward. I think it's a common misconception quite often, particularly among young people. You know, I think, oh, the Bible, the Bible's just there. It's just there to tell us what we can and can't do. Oh, it's just there to ruin our day. It's just there to set down boundaries. Oh, you know, uh, that, you know that's, just, that's just there to ruin my day. But what David's saying here is, yes, there's warning, but actually by obeying Scripture, by walking in light of Scripture, walking in line with Scripture, there is great reward. It's the best way to live because God, the Creator, knows what's best for His people. I'm a great fan of the American TV series, The West Wing. Um, Actually, back in March when lockdown, March 2020, when lockdown hit, I decided to watch it again. Watched through the whole thing. Took me about 18 months, but um, any spare time I had, I put on an episode of The West Wing. It's, it's very intelligent, engaging, well-written, well-acted um, TV uh, drama. And it's won umpteen awards, but people who are familiar with The West Wing will know that the writer is a guy called Aaron Sorkin. And many people regard him as one of the best of the best writers. And all the actors say he knows exactly what he wants when he writes it, and you better stick to it. You'll get the best performance possible. If he uses the word and instead of the word also, you should use the word and, not the word also. And the main actor in the series, The West Wing, is, is Martin Sheen. He plays the president. And Martin Sheen was an accomplished actor. And when he started the show, he thought he could improvise a little bit on Aaron Sorkin's script. He thought, oh, well, you know, like, well, really, I could change the odd word or, you know, I could, I could diverge a little bit here, a little bit there. And he soon discovered that he was wrong. He says, you know, you soon discover you don't mess with such a brilliant scriptwriter like Aaron Sorkin. And this is what Martin Sheen wrote about his experience. Listen very carefully to this. He said this. He said, when I surrendered to the word and was ruled by the specific text, I discovered a wonderful freedom. When I surrendered to the word and was ruled by the specific text, I discovered a wonderful freedom. Now, that's Aaron Sorkin, and he, or that's um, Martin Sheen, and he's writing about Aaron Sorkin and his words. But what he's saying there is far from, making, far from that script making him a worse actor, it made him a better actor. It gave him freedom then to act well. How much more with the word of God from the creator God given to his people, when we surrender to the word, when we're ruled by the specific text, we will discover a wonderful freedom. There is great reward. We can depend on scripture as we follow it to, to give us freedom for life and godliness. 
David is saying that in keeping scripture, there's great reward, there's freedom, there's joy, and there's release. Do we really believe that obedience to scripture brings great reward? You know, there, there are many areas, many areas you could, you could test this out on, you could, you could illustrate. I'm trying to think of an area to illustrate it. But let me use one example just to test whether we actually depend on God's word. You know, scripture is clear. The teaching of scripture is clear about sexual relationships that sexual relationships are to be enjoyed in the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. That's challenged in our current cultural context in a variety of ways. But do we recognize that by sticking to the teaching of Scripture, there's reward? It's being influenced by our culture. We know the ways in which it's being caught. We see it on TV. We see how people live. And there is warning, but there is great reward. Great reward to be kept by sticking to Scripture. There's warning to be had, and there's also folly and harm. That's just one example. There's many other examples we could take to apply that. What's our dependence in life? Do we really depend on Scripture for life and godliness? Well, David's response to God's revelation of Scripture is to delight in it, to desire it, and to take one step further and to depend on it. He wants to live his life by it and in obedience to it. God has spoken in the skies, God has spoken in Scripture. The third way in which this psalm that God has revealed himself is that he speaks to the sinner. To the sinner. We see that in verses 12 to 14. So he speaks in the skies, he speaks through scripture, and he speaks to the sinner. In light of, in light of God's revelation, David shines a spotlight on himself. And in verse 12, he begins to speak about himself. And notice how he refers to himself. He acknowledges the fact that he is a sinner. And I wonder, as we reflect on God's word, I wonder, do we see ourselves in light of that? You know, I, I've, been, I've been quite challenged. I, I was speaking in the prayer meeting on Wednesday night, and I shared the, the parable of the tax collector and the sinner, and how the, the tax collector, you know, he stands up and he prays, God, I thank you, I'm not like these other men, you know, all of these people. I fast and I tithe and I do all the right things. And then the tax collector, he stands up and he goes, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then scripture tells us that man went away justified. I think I've been challenged by that all week. It's been running around in my head. Have I adopted the attitude of the Pharisee? Or have I adopted the attitude of the tax collector? And I've just been praying to myself, you know, this week, Lord, make me like the tax collector. Make me like the person who just calls out for your mercy. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I wonder as we look at scripture, and as we look, are we able to do what David does here? Are we able to turn, look at ourselves in the mirror in light of scripture and see ourselves as we really are? David mentions three areas of his life. He mentions his errors. He mentions his hidden faults. And then he mentions his presumptuous sins. It's three different aspects there. And speaking of his errors, he's likely talking about um, those things that we do wrong without meaning to do them. Um, the mistake we make and things that we don't mean to do that we end up doing. And then moves on to hidden faults. And these probably areas of our character that at times maybe are blind spots. And they're so bound up in our character we may not even recognize them like pride or anger or impatience or the propensity to, to gossip. Often these things are hidden in our characters. These are the things these are the things actually that a good spouse might pick up on and they might highlight them to you and say, you know, oh, oh, you know, 
And then actually our other hidden faults come up like stubbornness and pride. And then we kind of go, how dare you pick that fault out of me? But that's what a good spouse might do. Highlight some of these areas. Errors, um, willful hidden faults. And then David moves on to speak of presumptuous sins or willful sins. And they're things that we know offend God and other people. And even after weighing it up consciously, we go ahead and we do it. And those sins can often dominate our lives and rule over us. David holds up scripture like a mirror. He sees himself as he is, a truly a sinner. All pride goes. He doesn't look to other people, he looks to himself. And he sees himself as a sinner. What does he say? He says, he turns to the Lord and he turns in repentance. And he says, Lord, keep your servant back from these sins. Let them not have dominion over me. His desire here is not just to be kept from sin. And he realizes he's fallen so far short of God's glory. In verse 13, he longs to be declared innocent and to be blameless before God. Well, how can that happen for David? Well, David would have looked to the offering system in the Old Testament to be forgiven by God, which would involve the sacrifice of an innocent and a blameless lamb to make him innocent and blameless before God. What about us? As we look into scripture, as we look into our hearts, as we see, hold the mirror up and we see ourselves and we realize we've fallen so far short of God's glory. Well, we don't look to the Old Testament sacrificial system. No, we look to Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, God reveals himself to the sinner in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God reveals himself to the sinner in the person of Jesus. Jesus came to save sinners. He entered this earth to go to the cross to take the punishment for sin. Through his death, sinners like you and me could be declared innocent and blameless before a holy God. I want to pause and ask the question this morning, do you recognize you're the sinner in the eyes of a holy God? That your nature and your actions display your errors? They display your hidden faults. They display your presumptuous sins. If you come to the point in, the life where, in your life where you've recognized your need for the forgiveness of God, Jesus lived the perfect life that you couldn't live. He died a sacrificial death on your behalf. And that trusting in him, he will take on your sin. He will forgive your sin. He will give you his righteousness. And you can know what it is to stand before this creator God, innocent and blameless. I don't know, perhaps you're a young person here in church this morning. You've heard this message a number of times, but you've never trusted in Christ. You need to get right with God now. Maybe you've been here in church. You've been putting these things off for a long time. You know the gospel story. Now is the time of salvation. No one knows what a day brings. Get right with God. Do business with him today. What about those of us who are believers, who have recognized our sin, who have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? What's the application for us this morning? Well, I think the final verse gives us that very clearly. The final verse, verse, 13, verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. The mark of a true believer is a desire to put to death sin and to live a life pleasing to God that produces fruit, to put to death sin. Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we make it our aim to please him, to leave a, lead a life that is pleasing and acceptable to God. And the psalm identifies two areas that are crucial to consider, how we may please God. 
the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts. Scripture tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We all need to be challenged about this in our lives. What are the words of our mouths? What are the meditations of our hearts? Are they pleasing and acceptable to God? Because the mark of a true believer is a life, a desire to live a life pleasing to God in our words and in our, in our actions. We have to examine ourselves carefully. Scripture talks about abiding in the vine, and the true vine gives life and the branches grow. But there may be branches that die and wither, and all they're good for is to be thrown in the fire. The mark of a true believer is a desire to grow in godliness. We have to examine ourselves carefully. Scripture tells us to repent, to repent of our sin. Tells us to repent to God, firstly, for our sin. Tells us to repent to others if we have caused them harm. We're going to observe the Lord's table in a moment. The command from Scripture is clear. First, go, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. For whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner drinks judgment on himself. Perhaps you need to do that. Perhaps you need to go and repent before God. Perhaps you need to go to your brother and repent before them before you join in communion. Because scripture is clear. Whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment on themselves. But the remarkable thing about this is We don't do this in our own strength. We don't do it in our own strength. God gives us grace through the gospel to live lives for him. We need to look to Christ for the help that he alone can provide. I'm reminded of the the final verse of the hymn, O Great God, O Great God of highest heaven. We sing it in church a long time. And the words are this. It says, help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. We sang it there before the throne of God. I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. I think it's the words of the second verse particularly jumped out at me. I can't quite remember them now. I thought I'd be able to quote them, but I'm forgetting it. But that idea, help me to live a life that's dependent on grace. Upward I look, that's it, upward I look. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. May God grant us grace to live lives that bring him glory so that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable to him. So people are designed to know God, but God's invisible. How do we know God? Well, the wonderful thing is that God has not remained distant. God has not, God has not remained aloof. God has revealed himself to us. He wants us to know him. He has gone to great lengths to make himself known to you and to me. He's shouting to get our attention. Have you managed to see, look up and see the creator God in the skies? He's revealed himself in the skies. Have you looked to scripture? Do you read God's word and do you see how God has graciously preserved a record of his, of his revelation to us in the words of Scripture. 
Do you see how God has revealed himself to the sinner in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ by actually coming to this earth? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you're not, uh, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, let me encourage you to look up at the skies, look down at God's word and look to Jesus. Because although God is invisible, he's shouting to get your attention. I'd encourage you to respond to him with repentance and faith and a commitment to a life pleasing and acceptable to God. And may all of us in this room, may the prayer of all of our hearts be that the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, that they will be pleasing and acceptable to God, who is our rock and our redeemer. Amen.